You are listening to the Overfunctioning Leadership Podcast, learning leadership concepts through life experience. Well, welcome, friends, to another podcast brought to you by Of Leadership. I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And I'm Christy. Who's that? Well, today we have a special guest with us, so we're excited to have Christy Pro with us. Uh, Christy is the Director of Special Services with the Stowe-Monroe Falls City School District. Hmm, I know that place. It's kind of nice. It is kind of nice. <laughs> um, and so, Christy, specifically, like, what what are we discussing today? So, today, we're going to talk about how to manage self in an anxious system. And so... As as we were talking earlier, Christy is so good at this that she's like, you know, almost in, in, in like a spirit. <laughs> I don't think that's true. You mentioned but earlier you. about kind of gliding. Yeah, she yes. just glides around. Mm-hmm. She's just so calm mm-hmm. with clarity and conviction as a leader that she's our expert tonight. Looking right, forward John? to it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, by the way, this is episode 40. So, John... I've been thinking about this, uh, number 40, in honor of Peyton Hillis. I knew it was. I was watching a video of him just today. Yes. The white rhino. Yes, the white rhino. (laughs) Zach, right? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Another wide receiver? (laughs) He is. He's a big fan of the sports, as we all know. I can tell Sports ball. Uh Uh-huh. So before we get into how to manage self in an anxious system... Um, perhaps we should recap and last podcast was about traditions and rituals of the holidays and Zach, this was one of the ones that you brought up. I mean, this was one of our favorite types of episodes to talk about where we just take something and we just sort of, you know, what, what's that expression? Chew the cud? Is that a thing? <laughs> Spitball. I don't know. Uh-huh. Rumination. Chewing the cud. Yeah. Chewing the cud. And so <laughs> we just sort of talked about, uh, what, traditions have meant to us uh that's what our fables were about Mm -hmm. and then we just sort of talked through well what's the importance of having those sorts of traditions and rituals and um those types of events and structures in place for leaders and so um listening to it again you know I, i thought it was it was a good way to sit back and just sort of reflect on how i was formed um in my family system and in the same way, (laughs) Oh, Alex, you and your shifty eyes and just, (laughs) just the different ways in which, uh, leaders can create those similar sort of structures, whether it's in the home or in the the business sphere. I I remember thinking of the title. We actually heard the title live and I thought this is going to be lame. (laughs) So as you, as you look at the title and you think this is one to skip, I invite you to listen. I think it was pretty awesome. Yep. Um, says the people who recorded it. That's right. We're, we're pretty awesome is what I meant to say. <laughs> we're great. So we can all gain insight into how you guys all think because you've revealed your family traditions. Is yeah. that what I can look forward to? Yeah. Yeah. So it took a dark turn at the end. We talked about deaths in the families oh. and how mm-hmm. that shaped traditions. And it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is going to lead us then into the fable section, which Christy is going to do. So go ahead and grab those little like mitten boots for your dogs, strap them on there and get ready for fable time. 
All right. Thanks for having me tonight. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I was thinking about what I was going to talk about for the fable and was really how did I kind of get here and, and get to where I'm at and why am I constantly working in an anxious system? And um, so I kind of went back to the beginning and my background is as a school psychologist. And when I went to graduate school, you know, you have stars in your eyes and you haven't been in the brick and mortar school. So I thought, oh, I'm going to test kids. I'm going to gather data. I'm going to work with people and we're going to make plans and everything's going to be great. And everybody's going to love what you do. And you're going to be able to help kids. And, um, then I walked into my first school building and thought, oh no, everybody here is really anxious. And at the time I didn't have the right terminology for it, Mm -hmm. but you see that, you know, people are, are really anxious. And I was spent a lot of time trying to figure out why, and then how can I work within that system. So you have parents and it's their child and you need to understand that they're, they know their kids are different. Um, and they know that they want something different for them, but they don't know what it is because they're not necessarily educators. And then they look on the internet and then you have your educators and the rules are changing all the time and the workload has changed and education as a whole has shifted. So they're anxious. So you have this collision of the, these anxious systems by the time you get into a meeting and then I would step in and try to come to some sort of a resolution and and just how how do you th- listen to people and make them heard and a lot of times if I'm in a meeting with I've been in meetings with you mm-hmm. sometimes you'll see me I sit there and I listen for a long time mm-hmm. before I talk because I want to hear what everybody's thinking and then really try to digest you know why what people really want you know, why are they anxious? How can I help to calm that system? Mm -hmm. And so you very rarely see me get excited, overly excited in a meeting. Um, one of the things that we taught John and I met today, we talked about injecting humor at the right points. So that's a a tactic that I frequently use. Um, but it was just seemed to be something that I did really early on in my career. So stepping out of that role and then into administration, was kind of an easier transition, I think for me, because that was one of the things that I did a lot in my, in my last role. And that's kind of almost what I solely do now Hmm. is, is really work with those, all those different anxious systems that exist. And there's so very many of them. And so do you think that, so, so you deal with all these anxious systems because they're within students needing services, right? And then you bring in the parents there too. And so that can stir the pot a little bit more. Um, I mean, is that any, I'm just trying to like comparatively give that to another like type of system that would be similar to that. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think, I mean, anytime, is that so different from somebody who doesn't need services? I wonder in some cases, I mean, whether it's your, you know, just a kid, Right. Right. Well, and I think parents always want to advocate for their children. So whether or not they have a disability or whether or not they're upset that their math grade was lower than they thought it should be, Mm -hmm. um, it's still, I think it's still the same thing. Mm -hmm. But there is definitely a heightened, as opposed to, let's say you were in a business, so you worked in a business, Zach, and so like you get a different type of anxiety that what Christy's dealing with than what you would have dealt with. Because now we have a familial portion of it that has this deep-rooted, like, not that we all don't have our deep-rooted automatic functioning reactionary, but, like, from this, you're actually seeing it up front, like, right there, then and now. The anxiety can be... And just, I mean, we've talked in the past about um, you... We, we talked about how in businesses you see a lot more passive aggression, in my opinion, because people don't want to go to bat um, for 
a lot of different things. They want to sort of sit back and they'll sort of stir the pot until the anxiety overflows. And then that's when the confrontation happens. I don't know if that's all the time, but at least in my my previous business spheres, I've seen that, especially in a couple of internships. Whereas uh, that that doesn't happen so much in the school sphere because big mama's coming to bat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I was interested in hearing, kind of putting those two perspectives together. And so, Christy, in your role as an administrator, when something gets to you, this isn't always the case, but I would imagine that there have been conversations and difficulties that haven't been fixed or ironed out, and they work their way up to you. And Hmm. then, Zach, you mentioned about the passive-aggressive, that sometimes people have a difficult time communicating with one another. Uh, They fear conflict, their conflict avoidance. And so instead of bringing something acute and actually talking about it, it just festers and becomes even more difficult and intractable. And I think it just raises the chronic anxiety and then a trigger happens and then Christy gets called perhaps. Yes. I I frequently ask people to invite me to meetings where people are happy. So, because I don't always get to go to those kinds of meetings. Um, and it's, and it's difficult coming in after other things have happened because Mm -hmm. you really need to figure out what all that is. And then I think one of the things that I had to learn very early on and that I'm not always still good at are what are the solutions and then what part of that do I own and how do I differentiate myself from everything that needs to be done because there are lots of things that I could potentially fix, but that's not my role. Yeah. It's not my role to go into the parent's house. It's not my role to go into the teacher's classroom and collect their data. Um, where it'd be easy for me to do all those things that doesn't calm the system that just passes the problem on to me. Hmm. So let's shape this up to a, a, a few questions here. So, let, so we're going to look at it. What does it look like? This anxious system, you know, any ancient system, how do you know, what does that look like? And we can also talk about the different forms of anxiety. Why is it so difficult within those systems? And then how do you manage yourself and why is that beneficial? There's four questions there, but we'll roll through them. Um, they've already kind of revealed themselves already. So let's go ahead and talk about what, is, what does it look like? So if you're in an anxious system, we talked about this, kind of dabbled around it. So what makes the, the system so anxious? Let's just go with your example. You have student needs a service and parents are coming in so the anxiety that is there like why is it, what is, what does that look like like what is in your realm what does that look like so i mean the anxiety can manifest in many different ways it can be from a barrage of emails even back and forth which hmm. email is always very problematic because I always tell everybody that I talk to about email, however you want the person to not interpret it is how they're going to interpret it. Mm. And then feelings get hurt. So a lot of times that miscommunication happens electronically before you even get a chance to talk, um, on the phone. Um, so, but when you get to those meetings, you can see, you know, um, how everybody walks in. And so a lot of times what I've kind of learned to do is carefully sit people 
in strategic lo- hmm. locations, and then I'll choose my seat depending on how things are going. Sometimes I set myself at the head of the table if I feel like I need to take control of the hmm. meeting because the emotions and the tensions are so high. But usually by the time I get there, I've heard from, I know I, I've at least heard from the school-based team. Sometimes I've talked to the parent though as well. So it's just a matter of, you know, where are you going to sit everybody? And then who can I reach under the table if I have to? Um, <laughs> But, you know, you see, I mean, you can just see everybody come in and the, just the tension on their faces and, um, and it just, it boils over into the classroom. You see it with the students. Um, it really just affects everybody because the kids come in and they know that their parents are mad at their teachers mm-hmm. and they, and they talk about it. So everybody is really showing those outward signs of being anxious. I see those a lot. So with that, um, is it. It sounds like to me that they're already coming with the agenda in mind when they come to these meetings. Yes? A lot of times, yes. Like they already have the outcome that they're looking for without talking. I mean, even though Mm -hmm. it's been through email, it's almost like a hard fixed, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm focusing on. Yeah, very frequently. And that's that's why it's important to let them talk because the more that they feel like you're hearing them, then you can Mm -hmm. start to see some of that tension go down and then really... You have to listen and hear what they're saying. And a lot of times you can digest it down to sometimes it's, it's just simple communication. That's really all they want. Mm -hmm. So then how do you set up those communication systems? And then we'll formalize that onto a legal document so that everybody knows what it is. Everybody has the same expectations. Um, Sometimes it's because they feel like their child isn't getting what they need. And then at that point you have to be objective. And I always tell the teachers, you have to bring your data to this meeting. Mm -hmm. We, um, one of my mantras is you can't think, feel, and believe your way through special education we have to have real objective data um, because when you have your thinking and your feeling that's not going to help calm your system because that trust is broken Mm -hmm. we have to have something that we can look at yeah and then would you say that is there hmm, i don't know like the whole realm of students and people with disabilities is just so interesting to me i I don't know if i've shared with you my sister had disability so i've grown up with a lot of that and would you say that there i don't know if this is true or not but like there's a maybe it's just a different type of anxiety that comes with that because i wouldn't say that other systems aren't anxious right it might not have that amount, but there's a different le- level of anxiety or something, right? There is. I think just as a whole that the entire system nationwide is anxious. Mm-hmm. And and that can come from lots of different reasons. You know, I hear stories from parents about what happened in previous school districts. And I always think, you know, maybe about what half of they're telling me is really what happened. But if that half is true, then mm. that, you know, people don't do the right things for kids, unfortunately. So in that kind of sometimes when people move in, and I've had this happen, like they're in the lobby registering and they want to see me now Yeah. because they are ready to fight. And I'm like, Hey, come on in, come sit at my, you know, come sit down. Let's talk about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and that's that you have to be open and available to do those things. Um, because people are, people come in ready to fight with you. Mm-hmm. Um, just right off the bat. You talked earlier about acute and chronic anxiety and anxiety in general. I think this is a good time to talk a little bit about the idea. So chronic anxiety is 
kind of below the surface. It's the, it's a, it could be forward-looking. It can be uh, the fear of what if. Oftentimes we think about that. It can also be kind of backward-looking of wishing what was. And oftentimes what can happen is, as Christy mentioned, there might be a situation in a different district or in a previous time period, depending on what the situation is, that was mishandled and and a person feels like they weren't heard, et cetera, et cetera. And that just, that just feeds chronic anxiety. It just makes them fearful, makes them worried. You know, the scarf model that we've talked about before, the F piece of that's the fairness piece. And so it causes people to be closed. It causes them to, to be feeling more than thinking. And I think Christie's hit on a really important point that when we manage people, when we try to lead people, part of our job is to be able to take that anxiety and manage self and help them through the way we are as a person, the centeredness that we have, just to be a little bit calmer. And then from there, you can start to look at some resolution and actually come up with ways to uh, deal with the problem. So I think that I think we kind of dis- discussed here a little bit about why it's difficult. Um, any other thoughts of why? I mean, this the chronic anxiety pushes up so high. So they're coming to whether it's whether it's specifically about what we're talking about with Christy or any meeting that you're going into and somebody wants to discuss something. Their base level of anxiety. So you know they could come in. Let's see. Let's go up to a ten. It's a scale, and they come in already at eight. Right. You know, and so now it's like, okay, well, um, you're already at high anxiety. So now I have to do something with that. But that's not the only person coming in there. And so there's you as the leader. And then there's also a, a child or another coworker or something. And they bring up their own. And so now you've got all these different types interacting with each other. And if you're already at an eight uh, and ten's the highest, it's not going to take too much to push them over the edge. So um, I always found that kind of interesting and never thinking about that base level. Um, and John, you mentioned this too, is that like the base level of anxiety that you start out with is rooted in family. It's that family background. So, you know, as you grew up, you're also developing that base. And so now you have the base and now you're adding on to it based off of the different scenarios that are going on in your life. And so that could, and if you're already starting out high, now we're jumping right into reactionary feeling um, instead of thoughtful, thoughtful responses. So that's why it's difficult in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm, Christy, I'm, I have a question for you, and maybe you could address. So there's a difference between content and emotional process. So for our listeners, emotional process is external or internal. So I'm going to talk mostly about the external part, and that's the exchanging of emotions between people. And you mentioned that when people come into a meeting, even if you haven't met them before, you can just pick up on it. You can just sense that, and that's emotional process. But oftentimes what's talked about is content. There's a specific issue that's on the table. And I'm wondering Mm. if, in your experience, if the issue gets fixed, do the people become calmer or do they just move on to something else? Do they replace that content with a different content? A lot of times, if you can really digest down to the specific content that they're worried about, that emotional response will definitely decrease. Mm You can, you can, you can see it happen. And by the end of the meeting, we have a plan, we've agreed on it. We've got it in writing. 
for people that are still fairly emotional, one of the things that I frequently do is say, hey, let's come back to the table in four weeks. Let's, let's look at our data again. Let's, let's come back because that face-to-face for them seems to be very successful. And it is for, for everyone. Um, but a lot of times you see every once in a while you have somebody that moves on. They'll have a whole list of content, and that's fine. We can work through all that. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't bother me or anybody and it shouldn't because it really, they have legitimate questions that we need to answer. Cause I, and I always try to refocus everyone, you know, we are talking about a child. When you say digest down to though, you're saying that it's not always the first thing they come it's in It's not always with, the though, first thing. No. Which is funny. Is right. Special. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times it really honestly comes back to communication. Um, is, is, I think is the biggest breakdown that I see. And sometimes it's unintentional. Like I've talked about, you know, what are the expectations of the parent versus what did the teacher think the expectation was? Um, or they just want more communication. The parent wants more communication. So how do we do that and make it reasonable for everyone? And there's lots of different ways that we've come up with, with technology. I mean, it's awesome. We have Google docs that we share with some of our parents. So we just literally, and we're all on it. We all write back and forth. Um, and that's an awesome way to really, you know, if they want to be able to say something at 1030 at night and they want to make sure that it's there so that somebody's going to see it and they don't want to send an email and they want everybody to see it. Um, and then we have that whole, that whole record. So there's lots of different ways to do it. And that's really, I think the biggest piece that has come down to is communication. They want to know how their students doing. So if we can break that down a little bit, because we hear that a lot within leadership is about communication. Why is that so important? Like, what does that mean? Because I think it's really easy to say, like, and I have students do, like, um, you know, leadership things sometimes. And they're like, I want to talk about communication. I'm like, so what does that mean to you? So let's right. make, perhaps we should break that down a little bit. No doubt it's super important. But, like, why is that important? What is that doing to the system by communicating more often with somebody? Or maybe even, I'm guessing, communicating in the correct way is something you would say as well. I would definitely agree that it has to be the correct way. And that would be what? Right. Well, and the, it really varies depending on, I think a lot of it goes back to their family of origin. What are the, you know, what are their expectations as far as communication? You know, what does that mm. look like? And then what are their past experiences, even, you know, with last year's teacher, the last school district, you know, what does all of the, all of that look like? So, but it's just that sharing of information and objective, not subjective information is what I really think. You know, they want some of that anecdotal stuff, but Mm -hmm. it needs to be very factual based. Not I think, not I feel. Mm -hmm. I always tell them, you know, if you're going to write a note, it's not I. It's not about you. It's about the student. And really, what did you observe today? Mm -hmm. And then would you say that if those so you have some people you communicate with, right? Um, Are there some more that you realize that I'm going to have to communicate more with this person? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And what what are those factors? How do you how does that how do you decide on that? What does that look like to you? Um, it, it, and it ebbs and flows. It really depends mm-hmm. on what's going on. Um, and then, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, how do you define self in those? And I know I'm kind of jumping back to that. Um, right. But then you also have to be very careful because I've um, made the mistake of not drawing that line bright enough and um, been too accessible at times. Mm. So, you know, when you have a parent, I've, I've had parents that ask, you know, I need to talk to you every day. Well, you don't need to talk to me every day. I don't have the answers. I'm not in the building. Now, if we need to set up communication with your teacher every day, then we can do that. Um, but I haven't always been good at that. And then that tends to be overwhelming. And then that makes me anxious Yeah. Um, because then it's added responsibility. Is there know, a reason me. why? What's the reason why for more communication? 
I think it's it's if there is if we've made a mistake, mm-hmm. if there's been some sort of an error, some sort of a wrong, or the perceived error or wrong, um, until you can get them calm enough and okay. building that trust. It's really about building trust. Yeah, because it seems to me that the chronic anxiety gets to a point where it gets higher and higher, and then the communication. So they go together. Do you think? Like the, I there's would, more chronic anxiety, the more communication you need for that with that person. I would say yes. Okay. Yeah. That's 100%. a great. Yeah, that's a great question about if. Yeah. So if I can, in a situation like that, allow that person to have some sense of certainty and a resolution path forward, then you know I'm good, or I just need to. So it's interesting that when a person's asking to receive daily updates that would indicate a high level of chronic anxiety in general Mm -hmm. and, you know, communicating with them about that, about rational world policies and procedures, I think then can help them be calmer and then they just need less communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, So managing yourself within that looks like what? So we're in a system now where somebody is desiring more communication with you. How do you manage yourself that way? What does that look like? And that's the hard part. Yeah. And when it has been for me, because, you know, again, my family of origin and I was the fixer, you know, go in and, and hop in. And, and that was one of the things that John's helped me to really kind of um, work through. So in knowing, you know, what part of this can I directly fix and what part do I own? And then how do I empower the people that I'm working with, whether it's the parent or the teacher, for them to take responsibility for their parts and at some point, you know, you check in, but you have to trust that they're going to get things done and you can't overfunction for them because then they underfunction. So many concepts. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's that's that's honestly been the hardest part because it's easy for me as a, you know, with my background being a school psychologist, if we have a question about an, an ability, you know, previously I would be like, oh, well, you know, I'll come over and I'll grab them and I'll run that math subtest. I know it's going to take me, you know, 25 minutes and then I'll write up the scores and then, you know, but we have a school psychologist in the building. I don't need to go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how do you draw those lines? So in through your training too, because overfunctioning could is not just only rational world. I'm doing these things for you. Overfunctioning can also be feeling. I'm overfunctioning in a feeling based. So right. through your training, does you know of the of the people that I've met who are counselors or the like, right? They seem to be trained in a way to not overfeel for people. Is that true or not? Or where does that fit in? So uh, it is something that you know we talk about is is how, especially we, we don't have as many counseling classes as the school counselors do, but we, um, and I'm not going to come up with the right name of the theory and I should, but, um, it's, you know, how do you not own the problem of your client? So we actually had mm-hmm. sessions where we counsel people. And then if you are engaging in therapy, then you are also required to debrief so that you can let go of all of that because you can't own all the problems of every person that you see. I couldn't imagine yeah. what that would feel like. Um, so there is, there is some training and some strategies mm-hmm. and you have to learn to, to not take things personally and to know that, you know, because X, Y, and Z happened, didn't mean that you were the cause of it, even though somebody might blame you, um, that you yeah. did what you thought was right and you did what you were trained to do. And some people are never going to be happy with that, but yeah. that's okay. So do you find yourself setting expectations or clear agendas or clear goals with people more often? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I want to grow them in their capacity to handle these situations before I get there. Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't mind, I never mind going to meetings and I always tell them, invite me, you know, when you feel like you need to, please don't ever think, but the tape, but it changes when I arrive, you know, as much as I don't want it to, even in the positive meetings, people are like, Oh, the director's here. I'm like, it's just me. <laughs> um, but you know, once I come, you know, everything changes. So I really want to empower them to have the strategies to look at things objectively and not take it personally as teachers. And I know it's hard, you know, when you parents will say just about anything to get what they want Mm -hmm. because they're frustrated and because they're anxious. And I try to, you know, it's not personal. It's, you know, sometimes they feel like they're at their wits end because they don't understand or they don't see the progress. Um, so, but I really want for them to have those skills. Um, and then maybe I can just go to classrooms and visit kids. (laughs) That would be nice. I have more questions. So you said it's different for when you step into a meeting. Why do you think it's different? The tone changes. Okay. So because you've already had the principal there mm-hmm. um, or, you know, assistant principal, there's been another administrator that's been there. So really once, you know, beyond me, you're going to get to the superintendent. So, um, so people say, you know, I want the director here. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. I'll come. Yeah. It's, so, yeah. so my question is it change for the better? Um, hopefully. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but the tone changes and then at some point then everybody looks to me. And so I feel like sometimes the teams feel like they're losing their power and I'm always trying to give it back to them. And that's, and that's been, I think the hardest part about differentiating self because then, you know, people are looking to you and I've had parents say to me, why are you saying that my child doesn't need this? And I always say, it's not me saying it. We're looking at, you know, what does the data show us? What does your student really need? Or what did your student tell us that they want or need? Um, so it's not me solely. It's always a team decision, but when it never fails, when I'm sitting there, people always feel like it's me. Yeah. Do you think, I just wonder so as leaders, there's some portion of it. I've heard like sometimes for leaders, it's like increasing the anxiety to get people moving. Um, I don't like yeah. using those words. I like I like thinking of it as more of urgency. Do you think you because if you bring yourself as a as a self-differentiated person or a, or a leader who's going to bring the calm, you know, and clarity and all of those conviction as you step in, do you think because the tone changes because now you've made it more urgent for people to do something? Yeah. I mean, I think def- that definitely is, mm-hmm. is the case in, in some situations. I think it depends on, on the teacher. It depends on the parent. Yeah. Sometimes the parents are just glad to have an audience. So, cause it makes them feel important and that's fine. Yeah. Sometimes the teachers feel important. I don't care how they feel as long as we just come to a solution <laughs> at the end. <laughs> but, you, but, you know, you have to know the people that you work with well enough to know when you're walking in, you know, what is, I always think of in advance, you know, what is my role going to be? Mm-hmm. How much do I need to coach the person that's there that's the teacher or the administrator? Um, it's like a mini agenda. You've just yeah. decided for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are my own expectations? Sounds like you're almost a mediator in the sense of you are – not directly involved in any capacity except that you are influencing the little subsystems. You're influencing the familial system and the classroom system such that in that intersection, which is the child, all of the leaders are operating in their optimal capacity as far as you're involved, which is very compatible with Bowen's theory. Yes. That's a a good summation. I like that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. 
So we've we've talked about a few different ways of how to manage yourself within these situations. Um, one, we just talked about like building up your own little expectations and agenda for yourself before stepping in. What are my responsibilities? What are the other things that we can do to help manage ourselves uh, through a, an anxious time or an anxious system? Well, I think it's helpful to not be wedded to a certain outcome, like mm. this is the way it's got to be. Um, I think that tunnel vision can make solutions more um, elusive. So I think that'd be one thing of not being tied to a particular outcome. Zach, what, you've got lots of doodles here, sir. Um, so we were we were talking about communication earlier, mm -hmm. and I think that everything that applies to who you're communicating with applies to yourself. And I added a word, meaningful, because the thing that changes is we want everything to be meaningful such that it's not just empty words. Uh, we've talked about data, and it, we have a data-driven society that is a-relational without relationships. But what we're looking for is data that is indicative of what's true, what is actually going on with the relationship. So I was trying to like look through here and see what we can apply to both ourselves and other people. And, you know, I wrote down we, we need to dissociate ourselves from outcomes, but we also want to make sure that we're addressing feel, fears and allowing for honest expression of feelings, um, that we're setting expectations and roles, that we're creating and correcting processes, and we take evidence that leads to a stronger relationship to trust. And thinking about all those different things, um, just, it seems like reflection is just key. We, we talked, I, I, ever since we, uh, t had that episode with, um, our marketing friend, Sean Christie, Sean Christie, I've just been coming back to that whole, like walking down the street and reflecting sort of scenario. And it's just something that I feel we miss a lot, especially in an anxious society where we're looking towards that next fear when we're going into the unknown after reading an email and we're thinking, what is the worst possible way that we could interpret this? How often are we saying, okay, I need to take a step back. I need to remove other influencers and see where am I at with regards to all of this? Well, I think this leads pretty well into why this is beneficial. So I think talking about, you know, how you manage yourself, and we talked a lot of different ways to do that, um, but why is it beneficial? This seems like a piece that, you know, if I could just figure out the rational world and I could just get everything, if I had a perfect plan, then I wouldn't have to deal with this, you know, this emotional world that you guys are talking about. So why is it beneficial for me to reflect? Why is it beneficial for me to think individually of how to improve myself? What does that do and why, why do I need to do it? My very first thought is what we were talking about earlier. And you sift through all of this stuff into what's really important. And when I think about that, I think, you know, going through the things that I just said, what outcomes are really important, right? Like, how are we managing ourselves so that we're dissociated from a particular outcome, right? We, we don't get lost in the horizon, but we're making sure that we're focusing on our process, that we're focusing on um, how we get there. Uh, are we making sure that we're addressing our fears and all of that such that we're not 
overemphasizing those or it just seems like it it sets you on that path so that you're not only going in the right direction but you're going in the right way and you're doing it because it's ultimately important to you hopefully for the good the good and right reasons uh, Chrissy, I'm going to ask a question, and you mentioned about data, and in education we hear that data drives decisions, and Ed Friedman in Failure of Nerve talks about imbibing of data, and he even he even calls data addicting, uh, almost like alcohol, where pe- leaders can't get enough of it, and his belief is that sometimes we avoid making tough decisions because we just keep getting more and more and more data. Uh, I'm wondering in the, how you use data in, in what you do, uh, is there a sense where there's conflicting data? Is there a sense where data is actually delaying somebody from taking a stand? Do people hide behind data in order to not ruffle feathers. I'll be honest with you. I've never quite understood Friedman's perspective on that, but I'm wondering if you see truth in any of that. I think you absolutely can get lost in the data. And we've had cases where we do have conflicting data because there's different theories of psychology, especially when it comes to measuring cognitive ability, measuring reading, there's very discrete skills in reading. And depending on how your test is set up, you can get very different results, um, which is, is challenging, especially for a lot of our parents, you know, in the school site community, we always joke, there's one specific reading test and maybe it's not a joke, but we do because we're all type A and we have twisted senses of humor. Um, but if we want a kid to have a reading disability, there's one test that you can pull out and you can give any student. And I could probably make anybody, um, have a reading disability, but do they really? And the answer is probably no in some of those cases, but I know people that do those kinds of things, um, which again leads to mistrust. Um, but I think the, the thing that's beneficial about special education is we have very specific goals and objectives for our students that are on their IEPs. And that's the data that we look at. So when it's our, when we talk about a free appropriate public education and we need to make sure that they're making progress, um, on their goals and objectives and in the general education curriculum, but mostly on the goals and objectives is really where the, the legal part comes from and where we have all, I would say most of our discussions really lie in, in those areas. So those are very discrete points. And then, so if the goal says that you're going to have, you know, three out of four trials, then we've got four trials per quarter. So that's only 12 data points. So you don't really have anything else besides that. So that, I think that does make it, I think it may, it's, easier to not get lost in the data as opposed to looking at like the data for our school district. Like you could break, I could spend the rest of the year breaking down subgroups by building, you know, and then by gender and then Mm -hmm. by race. And then I could do it. I could do it vertically. I could do it by grade level, you know, you, and you do. And I think when we start to have some of those discussions, those for me are personally are very hard because there's like, I get a stack of data and I'm like, Whoa, what am I supposed to do with that? Um, and how does it relate to kids? So I think it's, it's easier in the, in the meetings I'm in because we're talking about one student. We're talking about very specific skills that are measurable as opposed to some of the other things, you know, that we really do get lost in. And when you're looking at the entire system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could see how the data definitely could be beneficial. Um, and I, 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 as you were talking, I was thinking of you're coming, you know, they come up to an agreement and goals. Um, and I wonder if there are certain people that 
are better at following those goals than other ones. You know, um, the goals work better for this group or this system as opposed to the, another system. And I wonder if how much that's based off of their chronic anxiety, you know, well, that goal didn't work. We need a new goal. You know, how often that happens mm. because that I didn't get the data we wanted or it didn't work out. Or even as you said, like if somebody's construing, misconstruing the data, oh, geez, what's that going to do to their chronic anxiety and trust going right, forward? Yeah. So the data can be used as we all know for whatever somebody wants the data to be used Correct. for. So maybe that's partially what Friedman was talking about too. Um, there's some underlying, the day, the data is great. And as, is, as you started talking, you were talking about collecting data and like this is this whole science where I love it, you know, like this is what I, you know, I'm, I'm a science person. And so it's all about collecting data and comparing it to this data and, you know, it's a lot of fun, but then sometimes it's just based off of the system. It's not, you know, you only have this, you only have so many people within your data collection map. So right. like, how true is it? You just talk to like one family, you know? So, um, so beneficial. Yes. It's beneficial for several reasons, but maybe we could do like one sweep around here to why what we're talking about is beneficial and why it would be good as a leader to manage yourself in an anxious system like why is that important to do that so um, i'm looking at zach and i'm going to make him go first congratulations zach um when i think about this it it goes back to being an influencer and conscious of your influences um, I think that if you don't manage self, you start borrowing from other people. You start being swayed with the, hmm. the wind and the breeze and the waves or whatever's where, wherever you're at. And you end up with, you know, all these, these objectives, all these outcomes, all these processes, all these data points, whatever it is. Um, and you end up losing focus of how you're going to do what you need to do so that it's in line with your convictions, your beliefs, and then you can be an influencer. Mm. Oh, we talk a lot. We, we've talked before, I think, and it's an interesting thought. Uh, people say, I want the director in here, right? Because the director is going to make changes. The director, the, there's that label there that, that associates change, but you, we, we've talked in the past about how you are asked into places because you're going to do things. If, if you're not good at influencing, people don't want you around. <laughs> like if, if you make things worse, I'm going to go out of my way to not bring you into this, especially if you have a reputation for it. And that can often make things worse because you're avoiding possibly the conflict hmm, you need to have. But yeah, so my answer is, be, so that you're conscious of how you're being influenced such that you can influence positively. Yeah, I would say, and Zach, you made some great points, and I'll just piggyback off that. those, that in any business, whether it's schools or computer software or anywhere else, being able to think critically is helpful in a place of business. In a family, it's helpful to think through challenging situations thoughtfully. 
And when anxiety is higher, it's just harder to do that. And the single greatest influence of any system is the leader and their presence. Mm. And so if I can manage myself in the midst of an anxious system, it allows others to be more thoughtful than they would be otherwise. So I think that that's one of the payoffs. I would definitely agree with with what John just said. And I think just for me personally, and from somebody that I've in the past struggled with managing self in these systems is, um, and I, one of the things I shared with John earlier, I felt like I lost me in, in some of the process because I, I was over-functioning for everybody and constantly trying to fix everything. And then, um, I also felt like I was not letting people grow because I would come in and rescue them. And then I, then they want you to come rescue them the next time. And then my job became their job. Um, and then I'm not doing what I need to do to, to work and lead the rest of the department. So that's been one of the biggest changes for me personally and, and why it's been so beneficial just to have this theory and to, and to understand and really realize and, and step back and, and take that new way of thinking about everything um, mm. and looking at those systems. And I'll, I'll piggyback off if I can. I, I remember when we first had that conversation and I said, so what do you want to talk about? What do you want to go through? And you said that I need, I feel like I lost myself. That's what you told me. And I remember that, that, that you've been able to find yourself in the midst of anxious systems, still being responsible for mm-hmm. the job that you do, but also not becoming so fused and over-functioning and, and uh, boy, it's tough to do. Uh, but it really is a benefit when you're able to make progress that way. And I'm much happier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's not from a, cause I'm, I'm much, I'm a fixer too. And so it's not from a standpoint of like, I don't care. Like you're right. like, man, I care a lot. Mm-hmm. I care a lot, a lot. Um, deep in my core says I care, you know, I'm convicted about this, but like you said, you easily lose yourself in, from the leadership that w- that we go through this theory, the number one person you take care of is yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to take care of yourself first before you can take care of other people. And you've heard that across the line with all sorts of other things, but that holds true here too. It's like, okay, how am I managing myself? Because it is beneficial, not only just to me, but to the other people around me. And so it's not a selfish type of deal. And John, I remember, I don't know if it was the last podcast, another podcast about servant leadership and how that's like a big push. It's great. And Christy and I, and I'm sure all of us here have really tried our darndest for servant leadership. And I'm going to, but then you lose yourself when you, when you're in the midst of that. And so there's always something to be said about taking care of yourself first when it comes to all of these things we've been talking about. And so I encourage you and all of us do is to take care of yourself. What does it look like to reflect? What does it look like to manage yourself within this anxious system that we are always in? <laughs> like it's just not going to go away. I mean, you know, Chrissy kind of goes in and out, just kind of glides in and out. But, but for the rest of us, <laughs> clearly as her stories have told. Um, but yeah, so I think that's pretty good. Any other final words, anybody? I think... Uh, it's been enjoyable. Thanks for coming on, Christy. It's Thank you really very much good. for having yeah, me. Having I enjoy being on. here. Thanks. So, um, if not, I think it's going to wrap us up. So you can check us out on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Simplecast, 
Facebook. Facebook, yes. Um, and you could also email us. I believe we've got an email. It's at, uh, let's see, theofpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's theofpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Jesse Huffstetler, also known as Jetler, for our sick beats, as always. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Christy, for coming in. Thank you. Really appreciate you being in here and just letting us dive into your system and seeing everything. It was really helpful, actually. So with that, I believe we are done. And I am Alex. I'm John. I'm Zach. And I'm Christy. And we will see you next time. Adios. See you around.